Sweet Jesus, thank you for the privilege to have access to your word, uh, that you're revealing biblical truths to us, and that we're seeing Jesus at the heart of them. That was our goal, and you've not let us down. But God, we need you to do that again tonight. Uh, I ask that you would pray, uh, that you would bless us, that you'd speak with clarity and conviction, and uh, I pray that we would have ears to hear. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be addressing the topic of the last church standing, uh, God's end-time church, and what He wants to present to the world. So let me ask you a question. Is it confusing to you that there are so many denominations today claiming to all believe the Bible? Is that confusing to anybody else, right? If you were to just go through a Rolodex of churches that exist... Uh, there are con- you know, varying numbers that some people say it's in the five figures of like 20 to 30,000 denominations, but some of those are probably like really not recognized, you know, like people getting bit by snakes out in the woods of West Virginia or other things that aren't maybe like organized denominations. No offense, by the way, if you have any family or connections to the snake-biting brethren. But um, whatever the circumstances may be, if you have any varying backgrounds, that there's thousands at least. We don't know how many fully, officially, but the idea is it's confusing, right? If, if everyone's claiming to believe the Bible, then why do we have worse than Baskin-Robbins of options, right? We have thousands of options. How do we know where to plant our banner, who to run in ministry with? Like, it, it can be confusing. It can be overwhelming. And my next question is, do you think that's God's plan? No. No. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33 tells us that God is not the author of confusion. And I say amen to that. God is not the author of this confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So if he's not the author of this confusing situation, who do you think would be? Satan, clearly, right? Uh, Jesus alludes to this in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Jesus says that I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Who do you think that wolf is? That big old bad wolf. (laughs) The devil and Satan, right? So Jesus is talking about his people and compares them to sheep. So the devil is the one who's scattering and dividing the sheep. This is his goal. And it just makes sense, right? In military, you're trying to kind of divide and spread people out because it's easier if they're isolated and separated than if you have a unified front. It just makes sense, right? On his part of trying to, you know, have the best advantage that he can have. So Jesus is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Now, if the devil's in the business of scattering Jesus' sheep, do you think Jesus has a plan to counteract that? You think so? I think so, too. He's not just going to let the devil walk off with his precious sheep. So what does he do? Go down to verse 16 of John 10. It says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the remedy here is hearing his voice that Jesus will be speaking to his people, and this will lead them into one fold. But he alludes to something else here. He says that many sheep I have which are not of this fold. And the implication is God has earnest, sincere people in other folds that he's pursuing as we speak, that he's speaking to and that he's leading as we speak, and he's leading them into one fold where they will have one shepherd. This is his end goal. So the question then is, well, how 
how do we hear his voice? Right? I don't know about you, but if that's how this works, sign me up, right? Wherever Jesus is speaking, I'm game. Where do we find that? Well, we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 16. Uh, the NIV is actually a little closer to the original language on the point that's listed here. So we use that for this verse. Usually we're using New King James, but in this one we're using the NIV. It says that how much scripture, all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that Scripture comes from God Himself. We talked about that in our first night together. It is God-breathed. Now, it's also alluding to this idea that it's spoken directly from God. Now, not, not verbatim. Uh, we do not believe in, in a word-for-word, word, or like a, in a... There are varying uh, views when it comes to this idea of how we got the Scriptures. Did God dictate every single word that was given to man, or did He basically give thoughts to man, and they use their own language to communicate those thoughts? We take that position, the second position. But the point is that this comes from God. It's as if God is speaking to His people through Scripture. It's the voice of God. So through the Scriptures, I'll be able to hear where Jesus is calling all of His sheep. But then the question is, would you be willing to go where he leads, right? If you know that he's speaking, would we go where he's leading? So what are some of those characteristics then of his sheepfold? That's kind of the next question. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, similar reference, but different book. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. For those who don't know, Timothy was a disciple of Paul's. He was a young man, and Paul was training him for ministry. He was discipling him for ministry. So he's writing in these letters and how to kind of run a church, how to organize things, how to lead a church. So he's saying, I'm telling you how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And then what does he give as an explanation for the church? The pillar and the ground of the truth. So if a church doesn't teach what is biblically true, could it be the house of the living God the Apostle Paul is referring to here? No, no right? It's, if it's going to be the pillar and ground of the truth, then it's going to have to teach things that are true, right? It can't be peddling or repeating previous heresies from other churches or other you know, philosophies and so forth. It's going to need to teach and preach the things that are true and clearly from Scripture. Okay, you can't be the foundation of truth if your fundamental teachings on the character of God or the teachings of Scripture are not true. Okay? Now, this conversation about an organization, as it's talking about an organization as a whole, not individuals within it, right? But the fact that people can be saved outside of a corporate church does not mean that God does not intend for there to be a corporate church. Do you understand the logic there? The fact that God is reaching people in other places does not deny the fact that He does have an ideal for His people, right? He does want His people to be in a fold. That's the point, okay? And He desires a pure church with pure doctrine that's consistent within itself and that accurately teaches how He operates, how He does life, and a true picture of who He is. So the first character Characteristic of this sheepfold is it's the foundation of truth. It teaches what is true based upon the foundation of the scriptures, not human traditions or distortions of the truth or distortions of God's character. Because remember, if someone is teaching something that distorts people's view of God's character, it cannot be teaching what is true, right? If, if the, the implication of what's being taught gives us an unhealthy picture of God, that can't be true. Does that make sense? It just can't be. It's too important. 
So then we get to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. It says, And the dragon, and who is that dragon? Satan, the dragon was enraged with the woman. We'll go back to this text here in a little bit later and define this woman again. We did last night, but this is basically speaking of God's pure church, right? His unadulterated church. He, he represents many times in Scripture his church as a woman, okay? And so you had this pure church in Revelation chapter 12. Then you have this kind of harlot church in Revelation chapter 17. And it kind of gives a contrast, a lesson by contrast. This is the pure church it's speaking of. So the dragon doesn't like that church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, if there is a church that is awakening the wrath of Satan, sign me up. Amen? <laughs> right? You know you're on the right side of things if Satan isn't giving you benefits, right? It's clearly you're moving in the right direction. So he's wanting to make war of what's left of the exiled true church. The devil was really mad at those who were like the apostles were in doctrine, teaching, and spirit, and he wants to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. So one of the second characteristics is they teach the validity of the Ten Commandments. Now, we've already had a presentation on this before, but New Covenant Christians have the law of God written in their heart and in their mind. They value the law of God. They don't think that that's their means of getting to heaven, that if I keep the law, then God will save me. It's not righteousness by works at all. It's the work of God in empowering man to live a God-honoring life. Amen? That's what we're talking about here. So by the power and grace that He alone can supply, that's the experience of New Covenant Christians. God writes His law in their heart and gives them His Spirit to empower them to walk in obedience to that law. But the third characteristic that was mentioned here was that they have the testimony of Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus? Well, in John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders. Did they like Jesus? And they weren't a big fan of him, right? He was kind of causing problems for them because he was challenging some of their views and their misunderstanding of Scripture. And Jesus goes in on this. He says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life. But then he says, These are they which testify of me. Remember, it says they had the testimony of Jesus. Jesus says that the Scriptures testify of me. But what were the Scriptures that he's talking about at this stage? anyone know? What scriptures were available at the time that Jesus was walking on the earth? The Old Testament, right? And so Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is testifying of me. It's talking about me, which may sound kind of different for some of us because maybe we've come from backgrounds where we kind of poo-poo or downplay the Old Testament. That's for the Jews. That's for Old, Test you know, Old Covenant Christians or Old Testament Christians. But literally, the only Bible that was available to the early church was the Old Testament, and they found great enrichment and nourishment from it. Jesus taught principles from it. The early church taught principles from it. They didn't view it as something that was irrelevant. They found it to be very relevant because it was the inspired Word of God that was available to them. Does that make sense? Okay? And, and Jesus is saying, the Old Testament testifies of me. So if something testifies of him, would that qualify as being the testimony of Jesus? What do you think? Absolutely. Okay. So the New Testament Christian believes that the Old Testament is a valid revelation of God's will for New Testament Christians. That's what's being said here. Okay. Now the remnant don't believe in the Old Testament church. This remnant we talked about in Revelation 12, there's different words they use for it, but this is one of the words that last time church, a last day church, the remnant church, that's very similar to the beginning. Just a brief kind of side tangent here. 
How many people have worked with fabric before, right? Gone to fabric stores and are familiar with working with, with textiles and stuff. So when you go and you go into the remnant section, right? What's basically being said is this is what's left of what was originally put on that bolt. And ironically, it's actually the first thing that was put on the bolt because they put it on and they spin and it layers over the top of it. And the remnant is what's left. So the Bible's saying that the last day church is going to reflect the way that the early church operated and believed and did life. Does that make sense? Okay, it's going to look very similar. They're going to believe similar things. Now, God gives progressive revelation over the course of time. There are things that, you know, Peter was having to work through as he was growing in his Christian journey and recognizing, wait a minute, the Gentiles don't have cooties. They can be saved too. There were things they had to learn as they went, right, as the early church went along, but they're going to cherish those main overarching principles the early church had. Okay, so the New Testament authors wrote based upon what they believed the Old Testament taught. And so those who say that the Old Testament isn't relevant or is only for the Jews, right? they're not seeing the Old Testament in the way that Jesus saw the Old Testament or in the way in which the authors of the New Testament saw the Old Testament. They, they clearly aren't seeing eye to eye here. So Revelation 12, 17 says that the remnant church at the end of time will have the testimony of Jesus. They'll believe that the Old Testament reveals the beauty of the character of God as is revealed in the life of Jesus in the New Testament. We'll actually close on that a week from yesterday, next Friday night. Go through a bunch of Old Testament texts uplifting the character of God. So Jesus himself said that he came to reveal the Father, right? And the love of the Father and the love of the Son is laced all throughout the Old Testament. It's not the way that some people have portrayed it. It's a God of fire and wrath and no mercy in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes to save us from him in the New Testament. That's not the way this works. The love of God is from Genesis to Revelation. We see it all throughout. Now, the other thing that's drawn out here in this idea of the testimony of Jesus is that the remnant church will place a heavy emphasis on testifying about Jesus and his character of love to the world. Right? They have the testimony of Jesus. And that's what we've done every single night together, isn't it? We've been uplifting Jesus, pointing to Jesus, and everything that we teach and believe. Same situation here. The everlasting gospel is woven into everything that they share and do. And that's, again, what we've been doing, lifting up the character of Jesus. So having the testimony of Jesus means that they believe in the relevance of the Old Testament and they uplift and testify of the beauty of the character of Jesus. Okay? Then we get to Revelation chapter 14. So Revelation chapter 12 identifies the remnants and some of their characteristics. Revelation 14 is the message of the remnant. Okay, this is what they preach to the world, and we alluded to a lot of that last night. Okay, so Revelation chapter 14, here it is. This is the first angel's message. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the remnant church makes an emphasis on a suffering Messiah. They're, they're preaching the everlasting gospel. They're, they're giving a message of a suffering Messiah to the world. They also speak of a judgment that has come, meaning that it's happening right now. Most churches are saying the judgment is in the future. But this message in Revelation 14, the message of the remnant church, is saying that there is a, a judgment happening as we speak. It's happening prior to the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And the message of the remnant is a pre-avent judgment. So a judgment has begun before Jesus comes back, and they're calling 
people to worship God on the Holy Sabbath, right? It says to worship Him, and then it directly quotes from the Sabbath commandment, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Okay, so the message of the remnant looks like this. They're preaching a suffering Messiah, they're preaching a pre-Advent judgment, and they're preaching about the Sabbath, calling the nations in the world to worship God on His holy Sabbath. Now, the other issue is, can you preach to the whole world if you aren't all over the world? Now, in, in the technological age, in some ways you can, but the biblical fulfillment of this is going to require boots on the ground. So we should be looking for a worldwide outreach-geared organization. Okay, so we'll get to that in a moment. So number four, they preach a suffering Messiah, a pre-advent judgment, and call the whole world to worship God on His holy Sabbath. And number five, it's a worldwide influential and highly missional church. Right? It's got to have access to the world, actively investing in the world. And I believe, as we've been walking through these principles, you probably know where we're going, I believe the Seventh-day Adventist Church fulfills these very principles and these very characteristics of the Remnant Church of Prophecy. Not to highlight a denomination, I believe this is a prophetic movement of destiny, that it's something that God ordained through Scripture, and it's about a movement, not about an institution. I hope we see that tonight. That's the purpose. But I believe Adventism falls in that category. And so as of September 30, 2020, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has 21.76 million baptized members in 92,000 churches and 72,000 companies. Companies are basically smaller congregations that don't quite qualify as being uh, labeled as churches. They're not less significant, but there's kind of processes. They're not just church plants. They're now like proper churches and so forth. So the Adventist Church operates in 212 out of the 235 countries that are recognized by the United Nations. Does that sound worldwide to you? <laughs> yeah, nearly all of them, right? We've missed it by 23. Hopefully we'll get there soon. Making it probably the most widespread Protestant denomination. We have 516 different languages worth of publications and oral work. And today nearly 25 million people worship weekly in Seventh-day Adventist churches worldwide. Um, and in 2011, it was actually the Seventh-day Adventist Church was the most rapidly growing denomination in North America, which is saying a lot because the most uh, popular religion that's growing in North America is a four-letter word, none. That's the direction North America is headed. So as the Southern Baptist Convention, which has largely been the biggest denomination, Protestant denomination in, in North America, they're losing ground. Many popular denominations are losing ground, and at that time, the Adventist Church had faster growth uh, in that sense. So Adventism has always been known as a missional church, right? You guys are witnessing that even now. In the midst of a pandemic, students knocked on your doors, many of you, in the midst of a global pandemic, and we're still having meetings. Now, we sit in every other pew, we wear our masks, we keep our distance, right? We're using intentional parameters, we're not trying to be presumptuous, but we also trust that God's work can't stop even though things in the world aren't going well. Amen? This is important. If this message really is that awesome and can change people's lives, we can't take a powder when the world needs it the most. This is a time when people are losing hope. And for us to just wait until things get better to offer hope, I don't think is a good idea. That's just me. I don't think that's a good idea. And so we're running a mission school. Many of you have benefited from that in some form or fashion. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful to see the fruit that God has honored those sacrifices that were made. And so anyway, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I believe, meets those requirements. 
Going back to Revelation chapter 12 and beginning of verse 1, now a great sign appeared in heaven. This is now explaining that woman in Revelation 12. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, these are all the things that are used to bring light to the earth, right? They're reflective of bringing light to the earth, implying that it's a pure, true church giving light to the world. That's their role. That's their job, right? One of the big mistakes of the Jewish nation was taking truth and keeping it to themselves and not dispersing it to the world around them. Uh, One of the things I'm very proud of as being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and minister is the fact that our church takes missions seriously. Uh, We do believe we cannot keep this to ourselves. And so then it says, Then being with child, she cried out in labor in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. This is speaking of the church leading into the birth of Christ. And then it says in verse 5, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, speaking of Jesus. But her child was caught up to God in his throne. Jesus was resurrected. And then it says that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. Now, if you remember from a previous presentation, that timeline was used speaking of the Antichrist power, right? The true pure church had to go into hiding because persecution was happening at the hands of an apostate religious movement that was killing people by the millions who didn't believe as they believed. So this church kind of has to go into hiding, right? If you read through church history, um, uh, you you see that you had the Waldenses and other people who were believing the truth, but were having to live in caves in France and other places to just kind of maintain their beliefs safely because it wasn't safe to practice those things openly. That's what's speaking of here. But it says, now when the dragon saw that she'd been cast to the earth, uh, that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. So the idea here is they go into hiding, but then after those 1260 years, it's going to reemerge in a larger fashion, right? Had to kind of go into hiding during those dark ages and those difficult seasons, but there's going to come a time where they will come back onto the scene and onto the fore. So the dragon attempts to kill Jesus and doesn't succeed, so now he tries to kill the woman of the church, right? And she flees into the wilderness for 1260 years. And looking back at history, we see that the church does reemerge after that time period. There's actually a time that was called the Great Enlightenment, right? There was a great awakening that was happening in the 1800s where religious revivals were happening. If you've ever heard of Charles Spurgeon or Dwight L. Moody, these were also preachers in the midst of this big revival that was happening of Christianity in the mid-1800s and onward, okay? And so... Um, the next characteristic that we're showing for the remnant churches, it's going to have to arise after those 1260 years, right? It's reemerging after those 1260 years, according to Revelation chapter 12. And the Adventist church fits the mold here as well. Um, you have a, I think I put this down here. I did. Okay. So this is William Miller. William Miller was a Baptist preacher uh, back in the 1800s. He was a veteran from the War of 1812, uh, nearly died in that battle, and eventually became a deist. Uh, He wasn't a practicing Christian. And eventually he got to the point that he set up to study the Scriptures for himself, to see what the Bible had to say, whether it's true or not. 
And as time went on, he came to realize that not only was this true, it can change your life. In fact, one of the most beautiful statements about his personal testimony, and I love this line, is he says that in Jesus, I found a friend. Amen? In Jesus, I found a friend. This man was searching scripture with great intensity and and earnestness, wanting to know whether it was true or not. And he found through that diligent searching of scripture that Jesus is my friend of friends. And beloved, I pray that every single one of you have that experience. That as you're studying, as you're reading, that you don't just learn things about what's going on in the world and how to shape your worldview, but that you end up being swept off your feet by the amazing love of Jesus. I hope and pray that that's the case. That this isn't just an intellectual venture for you, but that you find yourself falling in love with a man named Jesus. And he would not move past a verse in the Bible until he understood it. He would study intensely and earnestly. And this man is not a member of my denomination and, and was not a member of my denomination. He was a Baptist preacher. And In 1816 is when he's converted at the age of 34, and he gets this burden on his heart. He's studying things, and he's studying Bible prophecy, and he gets a sense that there are significant things that are about to happen on this earth according to Bible prophecy, and it's weighing on him heavily, but he doesn't have the courage to talk about it publicly. He's struggling with this, and he finally gets to the point that he says, Lord, if you really want me to do this, then send somebody to invite me to preach because I'm not going to ask to preach anywhere. And literally, in a short span of time from praying that prayer, I believe it's his nephew shows up to his house and knocks on the door and says, Hey, uh, our church would like for you to come preach for us. And he's livid because he did not think that someone would invite him to preach. He was scared to do so. And he goes out into the orchard and he wrestles with Jesus and finally surrenders and says, If this is what you want from my life, I'll go. And that was in 1831. And he starts preaching that he believed with all of his heart that Jesus was coming soon and very soon. And he's preaching all over North America. um, And he believed that in the year 1844, we talked about this in a previous night together, the significance of the year 1844. He was thinking, he read that text that under 2,300 days in the sanctuary shall be cleansed. There was a popular teaching of their day that the sanctuary was the earth. So when he heard that the sanctuary is going to be cleansed in 2300, at the end of the 2300-year prophecy in 1844, he thought to himself, that means that Jesus is coming to cleanse the whole earth, and this whole thing is getting wrapped up. So he was preaching a message that was convicting, that was powerful. It was seemingly logical and linear. The prophecies were lining up. There were certain worldwide events that were happening, the, you know, uh, meteor showers, the falling of the stars, and a blood-red moon, and other things that the Bible prophecy was alluding to. Those things were actually happening, and he thought, this is, this is legit. And then 1844, October 22nd, 1844 happens, and Jesus didn't come, and it was heartbreaking to him. And the things that he was searching and seeing had a lot of truth to them. There was a very significant event that happened in the year 1844 on October 22nd. We've addressed that already. Jesus began his work in the most holy place on this process of investigating, right? That investigative judgment before the second coming of Jesus. He was onto something, but the event was wrong. And the event was wrong because he had preconceived ideas that he was bringing into his reading and studying. And that can happen to us. That happened to the disciples. They were sure of the fact that when the Messiah came, that meant that we're going to take the Romans off of their throne and we're going to rule beside Jesus. But did Jesus come to sit on an earthly throne? 
No, he came to die. Is that very different from what they envisioned? Yeah, they struggled with this, guys. Can you imagine what they went through from when Jesus is crucified and laying in a tomb on a Friday afternoon until Sunday morning when news gets out that he rose again? Can you imagine the agony they went through during that season? Everything we thought we knew is wrong. Can you imagine that? Like, I saw the guy work miracles, but he's dead. The tension and the agony they went through, we cannot understand. And it's because they had preconceived ideas. They were reading language about the second coming of Jesus and applying that to the first coming of the Messiah. And they led, they ended up finding themselves bitterly disappointed. The same thing happened to this band of Advent believers. Not Adventists, there was no Seventh-day Adventist church at this stage. The Seventh-day Adventist church didn't come into existence until 1863, right? Many years later, almost 20 years later. It was 19 years in difference. But the point is, that bitter disappointment that they went through when Jesus didn't come in 1844 is the same bitter disappointment the disciples went through, and that can happen to us. But as further study went on, the realization came about that, no, 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 their significance of the date, the event was wrong. And that no man actually will know when Jesus is coming. We as a Seventh-day Adventist church have never set a date on the second coming of Jesus and never will because we understand the biblical teaching that no man knows the day or the hour. So as some of you are going through these meetings and hearing exciting things, maybe you've heard that from somebody. The Adventists said that Jesus was coming in 1844. There were no Seventh-day Adventists in 1844. No one existed then at that stage as a church right? In fact, the people who were believing that the second coming of Jesus was happening were largely Baptists, Methodists, and other Protestants. There was no Seventh-day Adventist church at that stage. And it wasn't just William Miller that was preaching this, by the way. There were at least 20 people that we know of around the world who were teaching the very same thing. Something significant is going to happen, and we think Jesus is coming soon in the year 1844. And these people had never heard of William Miller. That tells me that the Spirit of God was doing something on earth at that stage to prepare people for something important. They may have gotten the event wrong, but the date was not, and God brought clarity after that to make it clear what really was taking place. Does that make sense? This is kind of the backdrop in the history of what has transpired, um, because I know I've done this a time or two. These questions come up from people, so that's the main issue. I would strongly recommend reading a book, by the way. If you want to hear the history of this movement, there's a book called The Great Second Advent Movement. Write this down if you'd like to. The Great Second Advent Movement by a man named J.N. Loughborough. He was one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, one of the early members of the church. And he documents the history of what happened and what was going on in the world around the time that this happened. Uh, if you'd like the name of these 20 people, I didn't know if you want me to read that all right now because it sounds kind of nerdy, maybe kind of a diversion from where we are. So I just wasn't going to plan on it. If you want to hear it later, let me know. I've got all the references for that. It's pages 85 and 86 of his book, The Great Second Advent Movement, where he says that they know of at least 20 different people around the world. Uh, in different places, in the Arab world, in the Eastern European world, and so forth. They all were believing the same thing, okay? So that's kind of the backdrop. That's the back story there. Now, some other characteristics that are talked about regarding the remnant church. Jesus says, for any true disciple, for that matter, in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so one of the statements that Jesus is saying that will be reflective of his true church, right, whether it be the disciples in his day or the end time church, regardless, he's speaking to all of us, they will love others as well, right? He said that we would, love would be assigned to all people that were his true followers. Now, this is an area where we all can struggle. Can we just be 
real with that? We're human beings. The biggest problem with the church is the fact that the church is full of people. Would anyone else agree with that? The biggest problem with the church today is the fact that there's people involved. But yet Jesus wants people to be involved. So we got to work with that. We got to deal with the cards that were dealt. Amen? Some of us maybe have had bad experiences because we met people who weren't friendly or weren't generous or weren't gracious or so forth. Well, here's the point. Those are people who are striving to become better disciples and maybe they just aren't there yet. Yeah? I don't know about you, but I got stuff in my life I wish it wasn't there. Anyone else in that situation? And I'm working through that process, and I find myself at times not being who I would wish to be, but it's our desire by God's grace to receive His love for one another and for the world around us. Amen? Amen. This is a high calling, and it's a hard calling, but by God's grace, He can get us there. All right, go to Revelation chapter 14 now. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then, look, then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with them 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. This is kind of, uh, there, there's varying views and interpretations. Is this number literal? Is it not literal? I believe it's talking about the redeemed at large. Uh, maybe people may disagree. That's fine. But it says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of the loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This is one of the reasons why I believe that's who it's referring to. But it's not a salvational issue, so you can throw stones at me later. It's not that big a deal. But the point is that this situation, or that this, this verse, is talking about the fact that these are people who have an experience with Jesus that the angelic beings will never have. Right? We went through the experience of falling and being redeemed by Jesus. And this idea of a song in Revelation happens many times where they have a song to sing that no one else can sing because they have a story that no one else has. Right? We've been redeemed from the earth. We've encountered the grace and the blood of Jesus knowing that we didn't deserve it. And that does something for you, doesn't it? When you encounter that undeserved grace of Christ in your falls, in your weak moments... And, and it awakens a song of gratitude from the depths of your being, doesn't it? When you realize, I, I don't deserve to have what I have right now. And Jesus, thank you. That's where true worship is found, as we talked about last night. Continuing to verse 4, these are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, this is not saying that the 144,000 are only men, first of all, and only men who never get married. Remember, Revelation is using symbolic language many times. And women were already using this idea of a church. The point is they aren't corrupted with bad doctrine. What they're saying is they're not defiled by unhealthy beliefs. They're the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And these were redeemed among men. And I love this that it says it follows the Lamb wherever he goes because hearing about a Lamb and hearing about Jesus should somewhat remind us of John chapter 10, that we have a shepherd over his sheep who's leading his people into a fold, who's calling his people into a fold. These are individuals who've responded in that fashion, being first first to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Okay, so this is a summary of the identity of God's last day church. The gift of salvation motivates his church to be pure in belief, honest in words, and to follow the Lamb wherever He goes and wherever He leads them. They're without fault because they're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and they're dependent upon Him for every good grace. Amen? 
This is not righteousness of their own devising. They are fully dependent upon Jesus to do anything righteous or good in this earth. And those who follow Jesus then in heaven will be those who follow him now, wherever he leads them. Okay? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it says, And they, the saints, they overcame him, the devil or the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their own testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Right? These are people who overcame the dragon, overcame Satan's attacks by the blood of Jesus, not by white-knuckling it, not by working with all of their might and hoping they'll be good enough at the end of the day. They find assurance and power in victory in the righteousness of Jesus, in the success of Jesus, and by the word of their testimony. One of the things that can give you courage for the battle ahead is remembering God's faithfulness in the past. Did you hear me? One of the things that can encourage us for the battle that's coming ahead is our reminder of God's faithfulness in the past. We're going to be less inclined to bail ourselves out of difficult situations when we remember that God is the one who bailed me out the last time. We're not going to go to Satan's opportunities to get out of trouble, right, and difficulties. We're going to go back to where Jesus was faithful in the past. This is the idea. And it says they did not love their lives to the death, right? That selfless love, right? They realize they need to love others and live for others and give of themselves fully. Then we get to Revelation chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name. They were standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, a redemption song. The servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So the gift of salvation gives God's church victory over all the worldly powers. You see that? They overcame the beast and the mark and all of that. God's people stand triumphant because of the strength and power and righteousness of Jesus and the outpouring of His Holy Spirit in even greater measure to see them through that crisis. So they have victory over all of that and against anything that would attempt to restrict their liberty to worship and glorify God alone. And then here in verse 4, it almost sounds kind of like the first angel's message, doesn't it? This idea of fear God and give glory to Him for the hour His judgment has come. It says, O Lord, uh, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, which also was alluded to in the first angel's message, for your judgments have been manifested. It's like a repeat, kind of reminding you of the first angel's message. And so that's what the first angel's message has produced in these people. Are you seeing that? People have responded, and this is what it's produced in them. They overcame. So the very fact that you're hearing these three angels' messages, you're receiving what you need to be prepared to stand in that coming crisis. Amen? Why? Because God loves you. God doesn't want His people to be lost. God wants His people to be prepared for what's to come. And the gospel works. Prophecy tells us that when people embrace and receive this message, it's what empowers them to overcome all of what's coming down the pike. Then we get to Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down. Some people refer to this as the fourth angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with this glory. Now, what's implied here in the original language and in the, 
the undergirding text and context is that it's the glory of God that's illuminating the earth, not the, the, the messengers themselves or so forth. The messengers are so filled with an accurate picture of the character of God. Their lives have been transformed at this stage that literally their transformation of character and the power of the message they're preaching is uplifting God's character before the world. Does that make sense? We have no glory in of ourselves. We can only reflect the glory that only God gives. Are you with me in that? That's what's happening here. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So what's happening through the prophetic entity of Babylon right, is literally influencing everything that's happening in the world, commerce, leadership, government, and so forth. And it says in verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. So who's claiming ownership of people who are currently under the auspices of Babylon's influence? God. He's saying these are my God has people in Babylon. And as a loving, tender shepherd, he's telling them, come out of that fold. And if he's calling them out of a place, do you think he's going to be calling people into a place or into just scattered confusion? No, he's going to call them somewhere that's safe. He's going to call them somewhere that will protect them and look out for them. That's what's being preached in Revelation 18 and verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. This is that last message of mercy that's given to the world. God is communicating, I don't want you to be lost. And this system is not going to get you where you want to go. It can't. It's not capable. right? If you're looking to get a ride from point A to point B, that car is not going to get you there. I'm sorry, but it can't. No matter what attachments we have or other bonds we have, this is not going to work. There's only one way to get there. It's through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not through the edicts of man. It's not through an entity that claims to control your destiny. That's not possible. We do not believe in salvation by membership. We don't believe in that, right? We are saved solely by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen? So this topic of the remnant church can be misunderstood by only limiting its application to a certain group of people or organized church. Now, we do believe that God has an organized remnant end-time church. We believe that. But He also has many remnant people in other folds. And I want you guys to say amen to that, because we are not claiming to be exclusive or better than anybody. We are seeking by God's grace to just do what Scripture says. Because the Bible says that God will have a people who do what Scripture says, and that's our desire as a prophetic movement, is to do that. We are not trying to make the mistakes that the Jews made in saying, we have it all figured out, and you needed to leave everything you're doing and come join us because we got it together. We have nothing to offer you but Jesus. Are you hearing me tonight? We have nothing to offer you but Jesus and the clear teachings of Scripture. That's what we're offering. And we believe that there's a prophetic movement of destiny that God is using to awaken the world to the beautiful picture of His character that the world needs more now than it has ever needed. That's why we're here. That's why this this building is open. That's why you've been invited, is to invite you to enjoy a prophetic movement of destiny. Okay? 
So he has people in other folds. There are saved individuals right now in other churches. I'm telling you that from my own mouth. I don't think I'm better or my church is better than anybody. God has saved people, but God also knows that a time is coming where it's going to get really bad and the distortion of his character has to come to an end. He has to be vindicated. He has to be glorified. And he wants his people to know what's true. And he wants them to bask in the glory of that truth and to be safe from the coming deception. That's why he's calling people out. And he has people out there. He will call them into that safe fold. So before he returns, he will call the honest sheep to join together in one true fold and follow the one true shepherd. Some of you may be hearing that call today to leave a system that isn't fulfilling those characteristics of his true fold. And the good news is, if you're hearing the voice of Jesus to come out, he's going to lead you where you need to come in. Amen? Amen. If you're following the voice of the shepherd, he will lead you where you need to go. We trust that. Now, I want to close with this idea in Romans chapter 2 and verse 24. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul, your pastor, or, you know, your, uh, we, we have a kind of form of a structure where we have like a conference president, somebody who kind of oversees a, a region to kind of give guidance and structure and so forth. And Paul was serving in an administrative role, not just as a pastor of local churches, but he planted a lot of churches and oversaw a lot of churches. Can you imagine getting a letter from him saying the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I know about you, that would hurt. That would cut. And it's a strong warning to us today that we have to make sure that the picture of God that we are giving to the world is not leading them to reject Him, but that is drawing them to Him. Jesus says in John chapter 12, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. But if we're uplifting things that distort the character of God, that God tortures people throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, right? That you can't pray directly to Jesus yet to come talk to a man, right? If you have circumstances where you're teaching other things that are just uglifying the character of God before the world, this is not a place that we want to remain. Are you with me in that? It's not going to be a healthy place to remain. So the unfortunate truth is that many today don't believe in God, and it's not because of who He really is. It's because of who He has been betrayed to be by the people who claim to know Him and teach the truth. Some of us may have an experience about that, right? There's been reports in recent years of abuse that's happened in multiple you know, congregations in this area that is heartbreaking, that is devastating. People abuse the trust that was given to them. And God is saying, I have nothing to do with that. God is distancing himself from any form of bad religion. So all doctrines that make God look sadistic and horrible have come from Satan and the vessels he's using on this earth that are spreading false teachings. And a remnant movement has been raised up to restore in the minds of the world a true picture of who God is, a God of love. The doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church allow people to see God for who He really is. We believe these are the same beliefs the early church had, so that they can make an intelligent choice. The French Revolution was the byproduct of an ugly picture of God sent forth by a church that was not adequately representing Him. Right? The French Revolution in the late 1700s that led to the Pope being taken off the throne was a massive protest against that terrible picture of God. They literally got to the point where they said, if this is what God is like, there is no God, and we're done. To go from a nation that supported and uplifted the church to now pulling the Pope off the throne and declaring that there is no God, modern-day atheism is largely birthed out of this circumstance. It's not something that's a scientific venture. 
They want you to think that, but largely, modern-day atheism is not an issue of science. It's an issue of experience. There are so many people today who are atheists, not for scientific reasons, but experiential reasons. Abuses in church, people overstepping their bounds, horrible pictures of God. This process over time has led many people to reject a God that doesn't even exist. This is what's so heartbreaking to him. They're literally wanting nothing to do with God and rejecting a God that the Bible does not even talk about or endorse. Do you see the difficulty that God has here? And he's raising up a movement in this context to give a true and healthy picture of God, telling people, hey, hey, God is not going to torture you forever. Right? God is not going to coerce you and force you and manipulate you. God is not signing off on people abusing you or your children. This is not something that God signs up for. He has nothing to do with that. Right? This is the point. They literally, like this, this whole movement of apostate Christianity is what led to modern-day atheism. Not that they invented it, but they caused it. And we need to make that clear to the world because of the picture they gave God. Now, here comes the remnant standing in opposition to that ugly picture of God, teaching the truth about God, saying that God is not going to execute judgment on anyone until he does an investigation. He's that type of person. That shows a God who's understanding, who's compassionate, who's sympathetic. A church that says, hey, listen, God won't torture you forever because he actually really does love you. It's restoring into the minds of people who God really is, that he's promised to be your source of righteousness. You don't have to be your own source of righteousness. Jesus has promised to be your source of righteousness. You can't work your way to heaven. That he has a blessing every seven days to give you. True rest in the accomplished work of Jesus. And the list goes on. And tonight, we're just asking you to be a part of that kind of a movement. A movement that is restoring a true picture of God before the world. That's a movement of destiny that's worth joining. Amen? Something that's improving people's view of God, not tearing down people's view of God. And this, I think, is the most important thing we can be doing at this stage in Earth's history. And I find the timing of this even ironic, because right at the time, in 1798, when the Pope was taken off the throne, the remnant church, right, God was already doing a work of stirring people in the early 1800s that things need to change. We need revival of primitive godliness. You had the Protestant Reformation that already began a process of restoring the image of God. Martin Luther saying, we are saved by faith. John Wesley teaching that God does want his people to have transformed holy lives. Right? That process continued to work out. And I believe that what's happening in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is, again, uncovering and restoring the original precious teachings of Scripture, giving people a healthy, beautiful, logical, and reasonable picture of God who is worthy of worship. Amen? Amen. I believe that's what's taking place. And I believe that what you've seen night after night after night is our best attempt at communicating God is reasonable. God is head over heels in love with you and wants more of you in his life. That's what we've been preaching every single night. He wants you. And though we've had to preach some difficult things at times, they're all in the context of the fact that God wants his people to be safe in a fold that will protect them from wolves and danger. Amen? Amen. Do you think I find any enjoyment speaking about other denominations or churches or abuses or so forth? I don't want to do this. 
but I am so overwhelmed by the love of God and the beauty of his character that I can't stand seeing a distortion of his character. And it's not fair to not address it because God doesn't want his people to be deceived or misled. Does that make sense? It's the only reason we'll even go there in any of these presentations. It's not palatable. It's not enjoyable. It's not that I don't know how to do it. I'm just trying not to be mean. You see the difference? I got no beef with people, but I have a big beef with anything that distorts the character of God because he's amazing. He changed my life, guys. I wasn't looking for him. My life was a mess. And what he did for me and the love that he showed me in my mess has radically changed my life. And when I came into an experience of finding truths that lined up with my experience with a loving God, I realized this thing works. Prophetically, it works. Scripturally, it works. And experientially, it works. I found everything I was looking for in this movement of destiny. And I'm inviting you this evening to prayerfully consider joining that movement of destiny. And I don't mean this as spectators. God is needing messengers. God's army is recruiting right now. He is looking for people who will tell the world, God is awesome. He's not a monster. He didn't endorse the terrible things that happened in your life. He's amazing, and he's begging you to reconsider. He needs ministers of reconciliation. Amen? Amen. I believe that's the call of this movement of destiny. And the invitation to you this evening is to respond to that to enlist in the Lord's army and join that prophetic movement of destiny. So again, we're going to do what we've kind of been doing in recent nights that will respond and then we'll record our responses. So here's the first one. Uh, And you can just answer by a raising of hands and we'll fill out your cards after the fact. But I understand that the Seventh-day Adventist Church meets the characteristics of the remnant church of prophecy. That I saw that from the Bible this evening. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. If you're still asking questions about that, that's totally reasonable. We're making the best case we can. All right, here's the next. I want to join that remnant church. I would like to enlist in that army and join that church. Amen. Number three, I'd like to give my life to Christ. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. I want Jesus to have full control of my life. Okay, number four, I'd like to be baptized or rebaptized. If you haven't responded to that yet, this is an opportunity to do so. Okay, and then um, on your cards, you can start to fill these out now. We've got number one through five. Again, that I understand that the Seventh-day Adventist Church meets the characteristics of the remnant church of prophecy. That we see that those characteristics that you've presented the remnant church should have, we're seeing that the Adventist church lines up with that. That what you've been teaching night after night lines up with the picture that we should be seeing from the remnant church of prophecy. That's box number one. Number two, that I'd like to join that church. I would like to join that movement of destiny, right? This isn't really about a denomination as much as it is a prophetic movement of destiny. And then number three, I'd like to give my life to Jesus. Number four, I'd like to be baptized or rebaptized. And then number five, if you have questions, if it wasn't clear, if you say, hey, I'm kind of there, but I just don't know, write that. We'd love to visit you. We'd love to have that conversation and work through that and study that together. That's why we're here. We're here to grow together. I don't have all the answers, and there may be things that you teach me, and we'll never know unless we have that conversation, okay? So if you have those questions, feel free to write that down. Um, but has, has this evening been clear? Do you feel like you've seen things from Scripture? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Well, we've got handouts that will help with that as well, hopefully. Uh, and then again, I'm available to have those conversations after the fact. 
Tuesday evening, we don't have a meeting tomorrow, but Tuesday evening, we're going to address the topic of an abundant life, that God desires for us to have an abundant life, and we'll address that topic Tuesday evening. Uh, Wednesday evening will be the idea of the voice of reason, a voice of reason that God has given to the world uh, that is much needed. And then we'll have two more messages next weekend, and that's the end of our time together. We have just under a week left. But thank you. Many faces have been here for most of these meetings. We're so glad you're here. Uh, Again, if you have questions or comments or concerns, anything along those sort, that's what we're here for. We'd be happy to have those conversations. But thank you for giving us of your time. And we encourage you to keep studying and keep growing, regardless of what decisions you make from this point forward, because God will honor that. Amen? If you're studying and seeking truth and going where that shepherd leads you, you'll end up in the right place. I believe that with all of my heart. If you're following Jesus and listening to his voice, he'll take you wherever you need to go, step after step after step. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you that you do have a desire to protect your fold. And one of the ways that you protect them is by removing dangerous teachings and things that would harm them. And you're calling people into a place that would give them a healthy picture of God, that would be fulfilling a prophetic calling to let the world know that God truly is awesome and worthy of worship, that He's safe, that you can trust your life and your destiny with Him. Not with a church, not with a man. You're trusting your destiny to God on high. And we thank you for that. God, I again pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.